Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. I'm here with Seamus Byrne from, from uh, Graphics Mint. How are you doing, Seamus? Hi there. Nice to meet you, Ronan. Good. Tell us a bit about your background and that you guys are involved in UX and how that works. Yeah, well, we've been in operation since 2008, and uh, arguably some people say it's the worst time to set up a, a business at the start of a recession. But, you know, we've been pretty busy um, through that time period and uh, making great experiences for users. I mean, primarily our motivation was was uh, is with software and making software easier to use for people. And I guess initially that started out with screens and user interface design and making things look better, giving it wow factor. But over the years, our passion for UX, which has always been there, um, has uh, really been satisfied because there's more and more demand for putting a bit more rigor into the research and strategy behind the users and why they're using the software to make sure that the outcome um, is not just a business outcome uh, to make more profit, um, or to be a successful product, it's 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 also and, and primarily, hopefully, to be a really positive user experience for the people who are actually using the software, the customers, on a day to day basis. Well, I guess over the years you've moved now into more like mobile devices. That's come more prevalent now. Well, mobile is just like you know it's been around for a while. I mean, mobile first has been God, it must be six years plus at this point. Yeah, I mean the 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 mobile revolution was significant. I suppose at the time you had hybrid apps uh, versus native apps, and it, it caused. I mean, my background before any of this UX stuff is web. I'm a web designer at heart. So back in the day, you know, you used to you know create a design, you'd build it, and you know you'd test, you'd QA test, it and that would be more or less it. When you get into mobile, you're thinking about different uh, standards for the different operating systems and platforms. You're thinking about different size viewports. And it's just gotten so complex in some ways. What's kind of challenging as well is if you have, um, as a visual designer, if you're styling, uh, you know, an app um, on different viewports and different sizes, it, it can be looking very differently. So, you know, the expectations around from engineers these days are you have to be able to give uh, the design in, you know, six plus different viewports. And yeah. sometimes that's not even enough. But I like to not get caught up in screens. You see, I believe... That things are being normalized for screen for screen design yeah. from a framework perspective and from a guideline perspective and a standards perspective. So we, I think we that's a solvable thing. I mean, ten years ago I wouldn't have been saying this, but it's almost even press a button now and you have a really responsive and um, usable website yeah. out of the box or, or application for for that matter. I guess nowadays the website can actually tell you what's what size screen you have on your your mobile device. And I can change accordingly to fit, fit with that. Yeah, you see, where, where I'm really interested in is discovering where and when the user is using their mobile device. So I, I think the mobile device is never enough information for me. Yeah, sure, in terms of being general, yeah. right? It's nice that people are, what percentage of people are using what viewports and um, what, 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 what kind of mobile device they're using. But that's a big distraction for our core mission at Graphic Mint because... I do believe the technology is kind of in good hands. There's a lot of great frameworks and engineers out there, and it's a done deal. The processes and workflows and systems to ensure quality control in development and engineering, are, are they're pretty good. Where, where it falls apart is 
in design. And a lot of people think design is just about how it looks. But as Steve Jobs says, that the classic quote, it's not just about how it looks, it's how it feels and how it works. So what I experience a lot is feature, what I call feature creep. Yeah. Just because we can build it and we can put it onto a mobile device or for that matter, a desktop, and we have the capability to build a feature, let's ship it. And what I often see from doing usability testing or user interviews or indeed just expertly reviewing software myself is that no one knows how to actually use the product. There's no actual sense of connection. There's no meaningfulness. There's no relevance to the user. Yeah. And that's the piece that screen design doesn't help you with whatsoever. And that's where the UX comes yeah. in. Because I can imagine that if you don't know how, how it works, how are you going to use it? Exactly. I mean, it, it kind of like there's marketing is kind of a dirty word a, a lot of the time in the UX circles. And I always think, you know what? I look at marketing books from like the 80s and it has com- customers, consumers and end users. So the marketing has been dealing with this for a long time. So I think the if, if you zoom it from UX, you end up in incorporating the customer experience right so the person has to purchase it or you have to purchase the product for someone else and then you become the user or someone you give the product to is the user but if you zoom in again I guess you're talking about total brand experience okay yeah and when it comes down to brand experiences, you're getting into consumerism, and I don't want to come across too balchy here, yeah. right? Because you know we're in a commercial-driven world. But the point of the matter is, sometimes the business goals directly contravene the user goals, and so a lot of the tension or conflict you can get between um, a product and the usability and the usefulness and the meaningfulness can come from the business goals being blinkered to, to what the actual users want. Yeah. Like I look at Ryanair, for example, what they've done over the years, they've totally reformed how their website looks. And as a user, it's probably easier to use than it was 10 years ago. You gotta laugh at Ryanair. I mean, positively, like, they really turn it around. They're still a nightmare to deal with, let's just say, in some aspects. For example, on Monday, my flight was cancelled coming back from Rome. Yeah. Just like that. You know, to be fair, it was an act of God. But, like, let's just say it was was a thunderous lightning storm, and I'm glad he didn't take off. But, you know, but let's just say it's cliche classic Ryanair flight cancels. The earliest one did too, in fairness. But I guess my point is, I was like, grown, I'm going to have to deal with this. Yeah. And I went through the service design experience of cancel, cancel flight and what to do. And I had two choices. It was I could get a refund or I could change flight. And I said to myself, you know, I'm going to get a refund and take this into my own hands because I need to get back to Ireland. Yeah. But guess what? I found the actual refund experience to be flawless, yeah. quick, efficient, easy, well thought out. So I was very happy that I had a very positive experience towards their brand. Because years ago, booking flights for them, you'd have all these hidden charges. If you didn't tick this box, something else would appear and you're paying for that. And whereas now, that's all gone. They've more realized the user wants to be able to go through and have no pain. And what that comes down to essentially is where we're at right now at Graphic Mint. We're very uh, embracing a revolving door of feedback. It yeah. doesn't stop. There is no end to this. You're just like, I think t- traditionally, when you get into lean UX and agile UX, you get into t- the concept of the, the perpetual beta. You're always advancing and you're always improving it. Unfortunately, traditional um, product industrial uh, manufacturing has given their process or, or, or people in product design are piggybacking on older processes which means you ship it it's done but that's because we're not actually basing the the uh, success of the product project or product 
on the outcome it has on the user. We're basing it on the deliverable, which is the output. Yeah. We've done a screen or we've done a, a, a software system. We're done now. Actually, that's only the beginning. I can't tell you how many um, usability tests we do every day that we see users simply not being able to understand the value of the, of the product or indeed how to actually use it. Well, I guess they presume that a life cycle once is, is every seven so many years. And once you've got the product done, you then start working on, on the next iteration. Whereas in reality, what you guys are saying, you should actually be focusing on what you've just developed and make sure that it's still going to be usable in seven years' time. It's not successful until it's sitting in a user's hand on a mobile phone and they can actually understand it and use it. And that requires a skill more akin to ethnographic research out of anthropology or sociology than it does engineering or indeed design. It's just get out there, go to the people and watch them and, and make sure that they're actually able to accomplish your tasks. There's just so many assumptions. I don't know. I mean, I often find there's very intellectual pissing competitions going on in a lot of corporate rooms around yep. the place where everyone's just trying to be the most intelligent person in the room. And that comes down to IQ. Don't get me wrong. IQ is an important part in terms of being intelligent to make decisions. But what about EQ? What about emotional intelligence? Yeah. What about a feeling and having an empathy for the users? That's the game changer these days. Because there's so many products on the market and it's evolving so quickly all the time, what makes a difference is that true genuine understanding that you get when a guest comes to your house for a party and you take their coat and you give them a drink and you tell them where the bathroom is and you bring them to a friend to actually, you know, to look after them while you get to look after the next guest. That's that kind of sense of genuine understanding that we need to be bringing to the table that a lot of products just simply don't have. I guess you won't miss you. When you come in, you won't be like giving some warmth and making them feel loved. Absolutely. And like then it goes back to the commercial thing and it comes back to like, um, we're trying to make money from you. We're trying to trawl your data to sell it onto other people. Let's just say that I think we'll look back in a hundred years and we'll see some of the bigger players, the, the kind of tactics that they're using or their, their business models, maybe looked at in, in retrospect as, as kind of evil, you know? Yeah. I'm not naming any names here, but some of the practices I see around me, um, like a lot of users, a lot of consumers, the market just don't know what's happening to them. They just don't know how they're actually, how, what the service means for them. And I get there's a value exchange, of course. Because yeah, I'm looking right now at, at some of these things you, you will mention names, and uh, what they're doing right now could be seen as, as dubious. And I, I think in hundred years' time, it'll be like somebody who used to used to work in a workhouse when they when when they were years ago, like or back in laundry, stacking stuff. And look right now, they're getting away with now, but in hundred years' time, they won't be because everyone thinks, well, that 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 was wrong. We have a great opportunity in this current era before the robots take over yeah. and everything's automated to really define a set of principles, core principles of how we want the world to work in terms of how, we, how it interacts with technology. And I think that there is, of course, great features. There's a great big players out there that are delivering fantastic innovation and features. But I think there needs to be a time for reflection upon where we're going. And I don't want to sound like a philistine that's holding stuff up. But on the other hand, if this singularity is going to happen, where technology is just evolving so fast, we actually can't keep up with it. What happens then? I mean, are we losing sense of our humanity? I think there's maybe should be guidelines in place that, that decide basically what we can and can't do. 
regulations of some sort. I think so. I I, I know that um, uh, is it Elon Musk uh, Tusk? I can't yeah. Remember. Yeah. yeah. He he was talking about like you know it is inevitable that artificial intelligence will be able to eradicate the human race at some point yeah. in the near not too distant future, and that we need to be kind of putting some principles in place to to guide where we're going. Yeah, like Asimov did with low robots. Robots shall, shall not kill humans. So if you bring something in that we don't end up with a world ruled by Skynet, that's what people are probably worried about in the long term. We don't want that. And the thing is, we have. I'm, in, I'm very aware that I'm in a bubble. I don't know if it's 1% of the tech, people who are savvy about tech, you know, yeah. and they know how it all works. I feel a bit um, sad because the rest of the world doesn't know how this works. It's kind of like in 2008 when there was the global economy exploded and suddenly we, the, the, the entire planet learned how, you know, there's this kind of, how banks work and how loans work and how building works and, and how, you know, uh, solicitors work. And we all saw how it all was a, a, a global system that they didn't really teach us in school, right? Yeah. Unless you were probably reading Karl Marx or something. But similarly, I think now there's just a lot of, um, it's a land grab of a space of the tech space, and it seems like the people who are pioneering and getting in there first are setting up walls around everything. And like, I think everyone's entitled to innovate, and I think it's, there's a lot of value from some of the products, but. I don't know where to draw the line. I think it's important that designers, I suppose, on a day-to-day basis, um, bring this up on the projects that they're working on, yeah. and they can make a difference at a local level. But I think there has to be that awareness of designing for good versus not not being complacent and letting things go when you know that there's a very negative implication for a user. Yeah, I guess right now, the main thing is if you're a disruptor, you're going to do well, but the problem is when you need to disrupt, you change the world as we know it. How do you go about doing that in a positive way? Yeah, and it's kind of I suppose the the it, there's a there's an incessant focus on disruption and innovation, and it's that bell curve. Just keep building on the bell curve, like Apple are trying to do all the time. But that's just one model. Let's call it. There has to be other models, and I'm not an expert in what the other models are or the alternatives. But I think it goes back to the commercial, the commercial, commercially driven nature of how what, what's driving all this. I'm hoping that there's a time where you know we will have a normalization of technology and of design frameworks and of content, so that people can actually have maybe it's like open source, it's, it's public domain that we can actually start applying this to areas that are altruistic for for the common good. Yeah, because I know that for that at the moment. Biggest hotel chain is Airbnb. Biggest taxi firm in the world is Uber, and they don't own any of the vehicles or any of the hotels. Yeah, and then you, you there's kind of Airbnb. Yeah, they're kind of in. They're kind of um, they're middle people. They're middle companies. They're they're in the middle, right, of it all. So they actually don't really own anything. Where the optimization is to service there, they're they're, they're kind of they've evaluated what in, in this traditional service flow is missing and what, how can we make the user experience better and they're offering that middle tier piece of that so that um, and a lot of the time it's bringing people together and being the middle uh, the, the, the intermediary on that but you see even with Airbnb like what's happening now is I think it was initially a very good idea um, to, to be able to activate people's you know normal people like, like yourself and myself oh no sorry normal I am but yeah. regular people to be able to open their households and to to, to, to make some money off it and, and give accommodation to people but now you can see just the commercialization of it too where for example I was away recently and I was in Airbnb 
but it wasn't someone's house that was kind of what you traditionally would would see like as uh, as a one-to-one relationship with a with a homeowner it was a third-party management agency it was very cold it was like dealing with a third party they wanted my id when i arrived i already told them i had my id logged with airbnb and please contact with them if you need it but it was almost like a hotel but without any of the trimmings you know it was cold they had a 78 year old woman meeting me at the door at 11 o'clock at night i thought that was reprehensible for her to have to come out and do that at that time of night yeah Yeah, i'm coming late but don't be sending a a senior citizen out Uh, i think at time what they're doing is that nowadays the ux looks very very slick and nice but but behind the scenes the product it mightn't be what it what what it should be yeah look there there, there's it could be back it could be uh back to you know sweatshops in in third world countries behind the scenes and that that's another thing we so so it's all very fine for us to want user experiences but there's a response good user experiences but there's a responsibility in delivering them that ethically you're not standing on people's toes or exploiting people along the way in terms of that service offering and that goes for any company like i think we're at the beginning stages of a new world and we have the opportunity because we have the technology and we have the, the, the experience and skills to be able to, to change things. Let's just look at startup culture. You know, you pretty quickly, you can get an idea from zero to a website yeah. to get trawling for like, you know, is anyone interested in this? And with rapid, um, r- rapid iterations based on real user interviews and usability testing, you can actually build something that's really useful, usable very quickly. So we need to be able to leverage that for much more moral and worthwhile experiences. At the end of the day, the world's a finite place with finite resources. And we are just in a bit of a bubble, I would say. Because remember earlier in the year, Facebook announced that they had got their own AI technology and the language going in, that shut down because the, uh, the AI was actually talking to itself. And it said, they're creating their own language and we, we can't have that. That kind of scares me if you're gonna get that happening soon. Yeah, it's, it, it's true. And I've heard something about like another company saying that they needed like uh, some space on the planet that was just for them to experiment on. And they're looking at other planets. Like, like I said, it's back to what I say. I got into this area because I want to make a difference for human lives. I just don't think making a difference is always relying on having to be so innovative with, with, with technology. Sometimes the most simplest things in service architecture, changing something in the real world can actually really make lives better. I suppose at the end of the day, it's coming down to morals and ethics and like who's in control of making the decisions for the future of the planet. And I think that designers are quite well placed because the technology uh, proliferation is huge and this goes back to UX and UX teams or UX teams of one we're on t- multidisciplinary teams of product designers uh, product managers uh, developers researchers and we're there being the human link and it's important for us to be able to speak up and sometimes that may be contrary to the commercial uh, driver of the project but nevertheless it's still important to speak up and I see this narrative emerging throughout the world because hopefully basically if you're a designer sign up and count and say look we're developing a product that's going to be used worldwide but we want to make sure that our product is, is, is being used for the right reasons not the wrong reasons yes and I think this goes back to the, the business models that worked 100 years ago 
are no longer working. And it goes back to um, the output. When you, t- when you think about traditional uh, product manufacturing, it's the output is a thing. It's something that's, that's it, it's shipped and it's done. Now we're in an era of the perpetual beta where consumers are very savvy and they're, they're insatiable for, for, for improvements. So the, the companies that are succeeding seem to have like thrown out the window all the kind of traditional I suppose mechanisms and infrastructure and workflows that, that are and hierarchies yeah. it's the like agile development is a classic example of that because it features teams that are just dedicated to a particular uh, task with their own agency to to be able to decide decide what is best because they're the closest to it right yeah. so tell us more about agile how does that work well, UX and Agile is a nightmare. I'll be the first to say yeah. I like to uh, be honest about that because a good UX designer really wants to have the time to A, understand what the real user needs are and B, be able to have the time to, to design what's best. So Agile constrains that both of those points. In the first point, you can actually have rapid usability testing, which does work. So you're basically getting quick feedback based on what features uh, the users actually really use, and you can get rid of and eliminate the ones they don't find useful at all. When it comes to the design part, it can be quite frustrating because it seems like um, typically traditional design has rounds of iteration, and in a two-week sprint, that's limited. So there's a lot of obstacles in agile to doing classic design but it's but i'm learning to i've learned to adapt and now really actually embraced it over time you have to let go of some of the the little niggling person in you that says hey you need to document everything you, you can't you have to keep focusing on the matter at hand and you have to trust in your teammates to know that you're not going to lose ideas the good ideas along the way and just keep at it two week sprints are very good as well to in, in terms of getting something getting an output but at the end of the day, once you start doing sprint one, sprint two, sprint, sprint three, sprint four, um, the, the problem is it can actually seem like you're, you're, you're delivering a very disparate product. So there needs to be ref- constant refactoring and bringing it all together and yeah. making it more cohesive as a story. And I think that's what a lot of agile teams are not doing. And that's where I go back to the designer and me saying, well, that, we're kind of just, we're, we're going so fast and we're changing lots of stuff, but we're not really weaving it all back together. So I think every three or four sprints, you need to take a deep breath. And it's back to that reflection thing. It almost echoes what we were saying earlier. Yeah. Innovation and fast pace and focus are great, but then I think you need to almost balance that with a bit of reflection. I guess basically you got to have a good team behind you that you know you can trust exactly. in the crisis. It's important. I mean, this is the one thing they say about all of this, um, you know, agile and um, lean. It's totally dependent on people who actually can uh, work in that format and have experience and skills to do it. You know, you can't, like, I mean, it's like anything. I mean, you have to have a good team. There's no two ways about it. And you have to have a team that's very flexible. Um, and, and it's just constantly changing. You could build something one day and it's changing the next. And you want to put a lot of time into the first one. But you have to be able to let that go and get back on the back, back on the horse. But that's kind of fun too. Yeah, I guess basically once you've got a good team behind you, you know that basically bumps in the road won't be an issue. I think the most, the most important thing about teamwork is that ability to be able to have a responsibility to your colleagues there has to be a sense of you know I will not let you down teammates 
you know and when there's people who just don't commit to that 100% then the work definitely deteriorates so I think the most important thing is that, is a commitment and a, and a, a sense of uh, I guess community with the team is very important yeah right thanks so much for that chat and uh, good luck in the future with Graphic Mint and uh, hope the UX world to treat you very well well great I, I, thank you so much and it's lovely to meet you and I hope to talk to you again thanks very much